This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Today, we're going to discuss uh, a one-year retrospective on uh, Joe Biden's presidency. Uh, One of the things that defines a democracy, and defines American democracy in particular, is the rotation in office and the coming of elections frequently. We are coming up on a midterm set of elections in 2022, and in some ways, these elections uh, will be a referendum on the job that the current president has been doing. Uh, one of the other defining features of our democracy is the the challenge and difficulty surrounding being president, um, and we will talk about that as well. So we will talk about Joe Biden and how the presidency itself has changed to better understand how our democracy uh, is evolving today before us. We're joined by uh, a good friend, uh, well-known commentator and political expert, documentary maker, Uh, who I think can give us the historical perspective on this that few can. Uh, This is Paul Steckler. Paul, welcome. Glad to be here. Uh, Paul, as many of you know, uh, is a professor here at the University of Texas at Austin. He holds the Wofford Denius Chair. Uh, He's a nationally recognized documentary filmmaker, someone who brings together film and political analysis, which is so much fun. Uh, You don't need novels when you can cover uh, political candidates. Am, Am I correct about that? Paul? I, I like the way that sounds. <laughs> uh, I would, of his many documentaries, there, there are too many to list, uh, and you could spend all your time watching them, which would be a, a good thing to do. Let me just name a couple of my favorites. Uh, George Wallace, Setting the Woods on Fire, the best documentary on George Wallace, who is deeply relevant for understanding much of our politics today. Last Man Standing, Politics Texas Style, the title tells you all you need to know. And really an extraordinary four-part series, Vote for Me, Politics in America, about grassroots electoral politics. Uh, Paul was also uh, one of the filmmakers for two of the segments of the famous Eyes on the Prize, uh, History of the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, And he's won all kinds of awards. Again, too many to list. I'll just say uh, two George Foster Peabody Awards, three Alfred Uh, DuPont Columbia Journalism Awards, three Emmy Awards, special prize at the Sundance Film Festival, uh, everything. It's all there, and it's all about politics. And so uh, Paul will be able to help us understand why we view Biden the way we do and what we can learn from that. Before we turn to Paul's uh, discussion with us, of course, we have Zachary's scene-setting poem. What's the title of your poem today? The Meaning in Our Malaise. Wow, a little alliteration in reference to uh, Carter's malaise, I take it, huh? Yes. Let's hear it. We spend four years in mourning, not so quiet, the raging and striving, the vigil, the riot. Now that we have come back, not to a sense of decency, but to the sensibility that there is decency to be found... Now that we have come back to our schoolhouse in our tree-lined street, to the realization that there is something to be realized, we have all been introduced to the meaning of malaise. We spent two years in mourning, two years for the dying, the dead, the yet-to-die, and the yet-to-be-killed. We spent those years in our own minds, tinkering and prying. Now that we have come back, not to a true normalcy, but to the intuition that we might get to see it, 
Now that we have come back to our schoolhouse and our tree-lined street, our grapevine, our fig tree, the image of the bird sitting on the branch looking at me, we have all been introduced to the meaning of malaise. I might have known when I heard your voice through the radio, and perhaps I thought I could hear America singing, that really it was just you trying your best, like all the rest. We lived four years this morning, on the radio. You spoke and told us that there would be answers by the next snow. Perhaps, now that we have come back not from all the battlefields, but from the ones we still manage to remember, perhaps, now that we have come back to our own faces, cold and damp, in a midnight sweat, dreaming of inconsequence, maybe now we will, together, grasp the meaning in our malaise. That's a very moving poem, Zachary. It's also a bit of a dark poem, isn't it? Yes. Uh, it sort of, I think, speaks to the frustration of this moment after so much political chaos when finally it seems like we've reached something that can be considered more meaningful and, and, and progress. And then that progress comes very slowly. And it's about trying to come to terms with that frustration after that sort of zero hour. Right, right. I think that's a great place to start. Paul, so many of us, I think you and I included, uh, were excited a year ago. Uh, thought there was great potential. I hope we still believe that. But w w why has it been so hard this year? Why has there been this th this sense of malaise? I think, as Zachary calls it. Well, I don't. You know, I'm not sure about uh, the use of the word malaise because that um, that makes us think of the Carter years. You know, and the situation under Jimmy Carter's presidency was very different than um, uh, than what we face now. I mean, under Carter. You know, with I guess with stagflation and the economy not doing very well, and oil crisis and the humiliation of um, in the eyes of many Americans uh, with the Iranian hostage uh, uh, situation, um, you know, things just didn't feel very good. Period, um, and um, you know, it was sort of symbolized at the very end with the um, the botched uh, rescue uh, of the hostages you know, uh, that, that year as well. And so that the Carter administration was seen to be incompetent. Um, you know, and much of the desire for Reagan, you know, came for looking for uh, a more powerful looking, competent, happy warrior uh, kind of presidency. Um, with Biden, uh, we don't have that kind of breakdown. Uh, we have a different situation and it's sort of the the ebbs and flows of this never-ending pandemic, uh, the economy is nowhere near as, as bad off as it was back then. Inflation is bad. You know, though most economists would um, would tell you that a lot of this, and if you take a look at the inflation level in most of the other of the Western world, you know, it's pretty much the same. It's, you know, a problem of demand and the lack of supply, which theoretically will write itself. Now, will it write itself in time for the mid-year elections? And, you know, who knows? You know, I think the the thing that both those epics have in common is that there was a similar desire uh, that fueled Carter's election and fueled Biden's election. Uh, you know, with, with Carter's election, it was a rejection of the Nixon years. Uh, you know, and so Carter, um, you know, sold himself as somebody who would uh, – would not tell a lie, who would uh, bring on a different kind of uh, morality in Washington, D.C. And sort of in a similar way, Joe Biden was elected to not be Donald Trump. Right. 
Which is very different than getting elected and thinking he's going to be FDR, right. you know, or even Lyndon Johnson of the Great Society. And I think, you know, um, you know, we can get into this later on, but, you know, part of the fantasy problems of the Democratic Party is that, you know, people kind of forgot that, yeah, he got elected by you know, whatever it was, 8 million votes, but the Democrats took a shellacking on local elections and in the House of Representatives and they were lucky to, very lucky to capture the Senate uh, because Donald Trump, God bless him, decided to get involved in the Georgia election and, uh, and kneecap the two Republican candidates by telling people that the election uh, was a fraud. And so they were able to score two, uh, two hard fought uh, and very close upset victories. But this didn't set us up for a population that was desiring a gigantic change in Washington, D.C. I think they were looking for somebody who wasn't Donald Trump and to restore some sort of um, politics of normalcy, you know, plus the promise, however uh, um, <laughs> hard, to, hard to achieve, you know, something of bipartisanship, bipartisanship in a different tone in Washington. There's a lot of blame to go around with that. Why has it been hard for Biden as president to control the public discussion? Is it just because there's there are too many media outlets? Is that, that's the explanation most people give, Paul, as an expert on communications. What has he been able to do to shape the conversation, and, and how has he failed? What could he have done to better control the conversation? Well, you know, it's... Um you know, again, it's it's realistic expectations in the beginning. You set expectations at a certain level, um, and it's always better to show to, to set lower expectations than higher expectations. Um, and um, you know, I think he was faced with a situation where, you know, and it's, it's I don't want to totally blame the Democratic Party, but uh, you know, something why don't I? I mean, there are large elements of the Democratic Party that have done a really fabulous job of making them look really weak. I mean, I've, I've got no idea what the progressive wing of the party thought they were going to be able to accomplish. You know, you have to pass things in the United States Senate, you know, and um, Joe Manchin was pretty clear about how he stood on matters, you know, as was Kristen Cinema to a certain more chaotic way of looking at things. And you know, when you start coming up with $6 trillion plans and $3 trillion plans, especially plans that nobody knows what you're actually selling, you know, that don't have any possibility of passing, and you just make the president look really weak. I mean, if you go back in time, I'm not holding up Bill Clinton as the greatest president of America, American history, but part of his uh, success in terms of public persona was his ability to triangulate so he could play the Republicans and elements of the Democratic Party against each other so he could come off in the middle. You know, there's a, I think there's an article in Politico today talking about the extinction of moderates <laughs> you know, in the House of Representatives. This is not a good thing. <laughs> it's just not a good thing. I mean, you know, you know, unless you're a Democratic progressive who thinks that the uh, – the strategy of the German Communist Party in the 1930s was a good idea where you get rid of the Social Democrats with the idea that you're left with the communists and the Nazis and one side's got to win. And one side did win. <laughs> it just it wasn't uh, it wasn't the the, the left. Um, you know, you, you, you have a problem 
Jeremy, in terms of just what the American public wants, you know, and did they want, you know, a, a game changer president? Um, you know, did they really want what the woke ring of the Democratic Party seems to be comfortable with in terms of defunding police, you know, or soft on crime? You know, I mean, most Americans actually want people to commit crimes to go to jail. This is even after George Floyd. And this is particularly important in minority districts where the crime level is really high. You know, there's an interesting piece today um, in the Times uh, about um, one of the authors of a seminal book in the early uh, 2000s, The Emerging uh, Democratic Majority, uh, John Judas. And this is his... Uh, his co-writer, and I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to pronounce his name right. Maybe you can. Roy uh, Texera? I think that's right. Yeah, I think so. You know, they're saying, well, what happened? You know, um, um, you know, the, the, the book was all about how demographics, demographics were destiny, that America was going to become much more diverse, which is true. You know, it's partially why Obama got elected in 2008 with the uh, you know, the American national electorate is much more black and brown than it was in, let's say, 1976 uh, when Carter was elected. But the party itself has become increasingly dominated by sort of a social social left bubble of, you know, quite frankly, white elites. You know, and a lot of the stuff that they're selling is you know, alienating, and this goes beyond just the basic alienation of working class voters. You know, what uh, uh, what the author of the Emerging Democratic Majority says was the idea was that Democrats would do well by taking advantage of this demographic change. But the idea was you didn't want to, like, lose every working class voter. And if you look at what's going on in Texas today with the increasing support, at least during the, the, the last election, of black and brown voters for Donald Trump, at least men, working class men, this is a very disconcerting trend, you know, so that, you know, Joe Biden finds himself in the middle of this. And I'm not quite sure that he had a plan. Um, you know, it was, you know, it was great that they were able to pass the, um, <clears throat> the initial um, almost $2 trillion plan to deal with uh, the pandemic. And all of a sudden, good times reigned. And people thought that, you know, we were in the clear and then all of a sudden <laughs> you get the Delta variant and on top of that, the Omicron variant. And this is really demoralizing, um, you know, even for those of us that are happy about the, the, um, the vaccines. And quite frankly, I'm very happy because, you know, I've gotten all three shots and I got COVID. And um, I'm glad that I you know, did not feel as bad as I might have. But it was not a cure-all, in a, you know, of, of anything. You know, it's kind of like I think we're finally facing a situation where, you know, we may end up having to get shots for COVID and the flu forever, you know, every year. Um, and I don't know that Americans were, you know, ready to have to go back inside or have to remask, you know. And so the Biden administration follows science, but they're kind of stuck in terms of. Okay, well, what do you do? America wants to open up. You don't want to be, uh, you know, against safety. But at the same time, you know, what's the policy that's going to work? At the same time, if you're spending a lot of time with Democrats fighting Democrats in Washington, 
and not dealing with issues that people actually are paying attention to, this is going to make the president seem very weak. And, you know, I watched his press conference last week, Jeremy, and, you know, he's not terrible, okay, but he's not charismatic and he's not fast on his feet. You know, we, I think we talked about this in preparation for the show, you know, where you got these, you know, essential idiots from Newsmax that are asking him these horrible questions about, you know, I don't, you know, what they say, they don't want to be uh, 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 not very negative to the president, but why do so many people think you're mentally incompetent? You know, or, the, or the guy that said, uh, is your China policy being dictated by Hunter Biden's uh, business uh Dealings. Now, you know, the proper response internally is to say, go screw yourself, you know, or as he said to the, the Fox guy, you're a, you're a dumb SOB. <clears throat> but quite frankly, you know, Bill, Bill Clinton would have laughed it off and made fun of the guy, right. you know, because there's a certain charisma and partially presidents, you know, and politicians uh, live off of the ability to be able to be charismatic, to be glib. Um, and this is not Joe Biden's deal. He wasn't elected because of that. You know, he doesn't he doesn't have that, you know, in his arsenal of, of in his repertoire. So what does he find himself with? You know, it's kind of like, you know, let me let's finish with this one. You know, I just took a look at the Pew poll today that says that 20 percent of Americans believe that Biden's going to be a successful president. You know, and I don't know if this is, you know, sort of the decline that started with the uh, the mess in Afghanistan. If this turns out to be his Katrina moment, you know, with Katrina, George W. Bush never recovered, you know, then Joe Biden's got troubles for the second term. Now, obviously, things can change and we can talk about that, um, you know, but right now, this is a, it's not a good moment for him. Right. So how has the Biden administration and Joe Biden in particular dealt with the Republican obstructionism in Congress and in, in the media. And, and do you feel like that obstructionism, that, that adversarial relationship between the two parties has gotten worse over the past year? I don't know if it's gotten worse, you know, and again, I think his problems are again, mostly Democrat versus Democrat. The, yeah, the Republican, you know, stance is, is, you know, is, is not a real big surprise. You know, this is what you expect. Um, you know, if he was more popular, um, he would be able to um, to work deals like the infrastructure deal, which benefited a lot of the Republican states. I mean, Mitch McConnell loved the infrastructure deal because it, uh, you know, there's lots of road building and, uh, and, you know, in similar kinds of projects in Kentucky. You know, so you can and again, this is not, you know, giving a pass to the Republican Party. You know, it's a screwy party. You know, it'd be really weird to see Kevin McCarthy, you know, a true nothing man as Speaker of the House. Um, but I think his problems, again, are internal. You know, the Republicans have been able to move in lockstep. And, you know, when you um, when you have a substantial amount of the party, which is unrealistic, it's hard to move in, in lockstep. So I think his bigger problem this last year is, hasn't been Republican obstructionism. It's the inability to be able to deal in some sort of strength of stance against that obstructionism with a united party with uh, realistic goals, if that makes any sense. Right. Well, and this comes back to a, an important point that we've discussed uh, repeatedly on the podcast, which is that uh, our system is not set up for a president or anyone else to be able to unilaterally 
um, change policies. It really mm-hmm. does require um, working with Congress, and it really does require a certain skill set. Uh, sure. A skill set that uh, Franklin Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson had, and, and a skill set that's different from other skill sets. That, that but remember, they also had gigantic majorities in Congress. Right. Which ostensibly makes it easier because then you're not dependent on one or two particular votes. So so you've laid out a, a pretty uh, bleak picture for Joe mm-hmm. Biden, but, but as we've talked about before on the podcast, and as you and I have talked about, Paul, Many presidents play, face a bleak picture after their first or second years. It's it's mm-hmm. a difficult job. It takes a long time to adjust. And as soon as you get elected, it's quite common for those in your party to make right. all kinds of demands because they feel they've gotten you elected and you owe them. So, sure. so this is not that unique. And Biden's uh, low approval rating is not that much lower. It's pretty comparable to other presidents before him at this time. So if you were in the job, uh, as you have been in the past, of helping a politician to turn things around, mm-hmm. how would you advise Biden to turn things around? Well, I think he's in worse shape than that, Jeremy. It's, um, <laughs> yeah, his, his numbers are in the toilet compared to some other presidents who were in the toilet and they got killed in their, in their um, mid-year elections. They were able to make comebacks and they ran for president again. Uh, I'm not so confident that Joe Biden's going to be running for re-election in 2024. Um, you know, he's not—he's not that young. Uh, what would I advise? I mean, you know, first I would, you know, go to mass with them and I would pray for a lower in- inflation rate, which I think will come at some point. Falling murder rates—you uh, know—return to some sort of normalcy post Omicron. Um, you know that that would that would be great. Um, you know, I think that. Um, the the rubrics for a better economy are there you know i think the supply train chain will get better you know i don't think that uh, we're in the kind of inflationary period you know that we were under carter you know so i think things will get better you know how does he make them get better quicker you know maybe um you know maybe he um well first things first it'd be better if he looked stronger as a president you know, I don't want to um, to be simplistic where, you know, he goes out of his way to insult the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, but it'd be really nice to assert himself. Um, you know, it'd probably be better to be able to figure out what can actually pass in his Build Back Better plan uh, and pass it. Um, you know, because I think there are, you know, somewhat popular uh you know, things that are in there and maybe it's, you know, maybe it's half of what, uh, what just failed, but passing something, um, you know, with some sort of at least a united democratic front, um, you know, and just, you know, trying to avoid gaps and trying to seem, seem stronger, you know, and, and I don't know that, you know, it's, you got what you got with Joe Biden. He's an older guy, you know, he's not particularly glib and, um, <laughs> I wish I was more positive about this. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, I think the only thing in his favor is the Republican Party, you know, is actually viewed more negatively, if that's possible, than the Democratic Party. Um, but somebody's got to win in a one-on-one race. And, you know, for better or for worse, you know, it's hard to make a midterm election about anything besides the president. Right. You, know, you, can't, you, can't, you can't keep bringing up the specter of this, uh, the evil Donald Trump. You know, even no matter, even if he's you know out there, you know, in an orange cloud over a lot of this stuff, 
you know, he's not there as he was in 2000, you know, or especially in 2018. So that's, you know, can Joe Biden become more vigorous? Can he get out there like he says he's going to? Can he, you know, um, be more visible? I and mean, he's given very few press conferences. He's, you know, he's not really out there with the press as much as other his predecessors have been. And can he figure out how to be able to manufacture successes, you know, even if they're smaller successes? Right. Right. What, one thing Biden said in his recent press conference, uh, which went on for quite a while, was actually the longest press conference in history, believe it or not. Um, he oh, said yeah. I he, watched much of it and it was it, uh, I think it's still going on. <laughs> so um, one of the things he said, Paul, was that he was going to get out of the White House more, that he was going to go out into the public. It's a sort of Reagan strategy, right? Go sure. over the heads of Congress. Is that a viable strategy? Well, every president does does that. <laughs> you know, when you're in trouble in D.C., you know, every single president, not just uh, Ronald Reagan, gets out gets out to the public. Uh, so I think it's great. Um, you know, if he had a more functional vice president, it would be helpful because <laughs> she's 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 not helping. Um, <laughs> God, I'm trying I'm trying to be more more positive. Um, well, it, can, it can't hurt. Okay. It, it can't hurt. Right. Um, you know, and you know, if this is going to be a referendum on Joe Biden, you got to make, you, you got to be able to sell what you got. You got to be able to sell, you know, all those infrastructure projects, which fingers crossed are actually going to start sometime soon. You know, there are also problems with finding workers to be able to build those roads right now. I mean, there, there've been a couple of articles in the last couple of days about this. But you got to be able to make the case for what you've done, you know, and why it's important for you to, to you know, to get support, you know, and nobody else is going to do that. So what would I advise? Better media people, you know, better selling plan, you know, Ron Klain being a more effective chief of staff. You know, you tell me. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so you do advocate uh, the president getting out more and explaining to the public what he's done because, I mean, it is just a fact he's passed the largest infrastructure bill that we've seen uh, at least mm -hmm. since the 1960s, and he's done more to lift children out of poverty than any president mm -hmm. has since at least the 1960s as well. But, but most people don't know those two things. You think those should be talked about more? I think a lot of this stuff again is uh, style over substance. Yeah, this stuff is great, you know, and um, a lot there have been a lot of losing candidates in the past that go go down talking about, you know, you haven't noticed what I did. <laughs> well, you know, the only people that are going to make that case are them. Right. So, of course I do. It's kind of like, you know, with the Build Back Better plan, you know, and again, I don't again, this is going to the negative. How many human beings actually know what was in that or is right. in that bill? Right. You couldn't have done a lousier job of selling it. All they know is, well, it was six trillion, then it was three trillion, then it was one point five trillion, then it was one trillion. One trillion what? Right. Right. I agree. I agree. I think that the the debate became a debate about how much money to spend, not what to spend the money on. Sure. And I think that's 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 part of the problem. I think democracy works best, and I think this has been one of our themes, when one can explain clearly sometimes very simply to the public what it is you're doing. And I think this is part of your point, right? That Biden is not a good explainer in the way that Bill Clinton was, for example, right? Sure. And now that I'm thinking about it, and again, this is going to be, you know, against the conventional wisdom, 
Like I said, I, I don't think you go after the progressive wing of the party. I mean, they're in their own la-la land. You know, I read, uh, what's his name, uh, Congressman, is it Bowman? Or the guy that knocked out Elliot Engels over in the South Bronx, talking with confidence about how they're going to take out moderate Democrats all over the United States. Uh, right. you know, you know, good luck to them. I don't think you take them on, you know, but what you might do is, I mean, for instance, this issue of crime and the Democratic Party's stance to it is really important. And right now, you know, if you get out of Austin, you know, in this next election, you're going to see a lot of commercials just like there were in 2020 about how Democrats are socialists who want to defund the police and let all the criminals out. Okay. And you got to have a counter to that. Okay. And one way you can counter on that is you can have the president, you know, on his national tours when he's not only doing infrastructure, but he actually goes to an American city, which is experiencing crime. Let's say New York City with a new mayor like Eric Adams, you know, who has a very non-woke way of looking at this. And you're there supporting the police. You know, the, you know one of the weirder things, and I think it's hard for a lot of the liberal bubble in Austin to understand this, is what a lot of the communities that actually want more police are actually poor communities of color, you know, because that's where the crime is. And, you know, if the president actually got out there and did something like that, then he could do his own sort of triangle, you know, tr- you know, triangulization deal, you know, where he comes off strong on an issue without criticizing the left, you know, but he, you know, he, he begins to talk about the bread and butter or day-to-day issues that, you know, non-liberal elite people, you know, actually might respond to. Because if you want to, you know, not if you want to stop the bleeding for the Democratic Party, you know, that's one of the ways to do it. And I can figure out a you know, number of different angles on, on different issues over there. And partially it's, you know, go to those places and talk about the jobs you're going to create or not that you're going to create, you are creating through these programs and let people know about this and try to publicize this as much as you can. The challenge is, can Joe Biden do this effectively? Right. And I guess we'll find out. So my, my final question, and, and this is, I, I think, the, the, the broader uh, question that comes up time and again in our discussions of democracy. Mm-hmm. You seem to imply, Paul, or, or more than imply, <laughs> that it's necessary for change, uh, for progressive change to veer toward the middle. That you have to do what what Bill Clinton did so well. You have to triangulate. You have to find ways to um, appeal to people uh, who are not on board with progressive ideas, and that means, of course, um, curtailing the extent of reform that you're pursuing. You think that's necessary and built into the system. You don't see an alternative to that. I, I, I don't think that advocating stuff that most people don't want is ever going to win an election. You know, I mean. You know, Greg Kazar may think it's a really good idea to defund the police. I keep thinking this is a Republican talking point that got sold to a lot of people. You know, it's kind of like, who came up with this? I mean, do you want to lose elections? You know, is this a progressive reform? You know, I think a progressive reform is getting people to work. You know, I think a progressive reform is making the school system work. You know, those are, you know, those are much more, you know, important issues on a day-to-day level of people as opposed to identity politics. Okay. And maybe I'm wrong about this. You know, maybe the America of the future is going to find a majority for this sort of, you know, 
sort of issue stances. I just don't think it's there. Do I think the progressives should stop advocating what they want? Sure. Okay. But if you want to realistically win something, you've got to be able to figure out how you build working coalitions that can get a majority of votes in elections and in Congress or in legislatures, you know, start running some people in the states, you know, do what the Republicans did, you know, back in 2010, you know, and start winning some of those state state legislative elections, because otherwise you're going to find yourself in a situation like Democrats are in Texas, where, you know, the legislature passed a lot of stuff that I do not believe is very popular, you know, but, um, you know, are they paying a price for this? You know, it's it's kind of like you got to be able to, this all goes back to, you know, selling something that's viable. Okay. And if you try to sell something which most people don't want, you're not going to win elections. Very well said. Very well said. Zachary, uh, so what's your reaction to this? Because you tend to, to, to be someone who gets frustrated with uh, the middling positions and the triangulation and the effort to have half a loaf rather than a full set of reforms. How, how do you respond? How do you think other young people who might be more progressively inclined would respond to this? You know, I'm more and more convinced that Paul is right. I think that there's a, there's a real skill uh, that so, so many of our politicians today lack in being able to triangulate, to, to make compromises in a way that actually gets things accomplished instead of just talking about them. At the same time, I do think there's a way in some ways maybe to do both, to appeal to the to, to, to younger, more reformist voters while at the same time uh, making compromises. And I think it would take it would ha- it would have to be a very skilled politician to to, to reconcile both of those things. I, I also think that 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 I think as Paul said earlier, that we really, after the 2020 election, underestimated the extent to which many people voted for Biden just because he was not Trump. And I think that sort of meant that we had artificially high expectations for how the politics of the past year would would pan out. Right, right. Paul, final question. Uh, if Zachary is right, which I'm sure he is, as mm-hmm. he often is, especially when he agrees with me, he's right. Uh, if, if he's right that uh, there's a, a certain political skill set um, that comes with pursuing, let's say, a, a progressive vision, but doing it in very pragmatic ways mm-hmm. involving compromise and, and bringing people in who are not as bought into that vision and whose support you need. Uh, how on earth would we teach those skills? How on earth can we cultivate them if we don't have them in the leadership of our parties right now? You know, I think we, uh, we live in a very candidate-centric political system. And um, sometimes the worst of times produce, you know, those candidates that we haven't seen before. So I'm not sure that we produce them. I don't know that we teach them. You know, a situation sometimes opens up itself to people you haven't been looking for in the in the past, different kinds of candidates. You know, I think that, you know, Barack Obama, you know, had, you know, had a very mixed record as a president. You know, I'm not quite sure that uh, once he became president, he wanted to be a legislative president very much. Okay, but who would have guessed that he would have been elected when he was? You know, and quite frankly, you could say the same sort of thing in terms of like who ever thought that Donald Trump would ever get elected. And so that maybe in dysfunctional times, you know, somebody appears that you weren't expecting, um, you know, or, you know, you can look at a Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Did anybody think he was going to be a, a, 
and a, tr- a trans transformational president beforehand. Yeah. yeah. You know, they thought of him as somebody who was a very pleasant guy, you know, who, uh, you know, was, uh, was more electable than Al Smith in New York. So right. I think you look, you look and hope for, uh, those candidates. That's, I think that's the best we can do. Well, and I think that's that's the the genius and also the horror of the American system because it is such an open system in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike a parliamentary system, you don't have to work your way through up through the party, right? And so we can get people who are terribly unqualified, but we can also get people who bring in ma- enormous innovation to the office, right? Yeah, yeah, you know, and you know, in terms of you know our system versus a parliamentary system, I guess I would take Joe Biden over Boris Johnson. Pretty <laughs> <laughs> on Boris. Uh, I, I think that's a perfect note to close on. As always, Paul, you have uh, shared with us your wisdom, your experience, your humor, uh, your irony, <laughs> dripping with irony today. <laughs> it's always uh, fun to have you on, Paul. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. And Zachary, thank you for your moving poem as always. Thank you most of all to our loyal listeners for joining us for this week of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.